Please open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, chapter 12. We are returning now to our final study of Zechariah, the final section. Not this Sunday is the final week. If you don't know where Zechariah is, start at Matthew and go two books to the left. Zechariah, chapter 12. And as you may remember, we've gone through Zechariah, and on numerous times we've talked through the structure. As we get back into the book, I thought it would be helpful, by way of review, to give you some sort of bird's-eye view overhead grasp of the outline of the book. We're entering into the last part of the last major section. So here's a brief outline of Zechariah. You can follow along. The book, Zechariah, means the Lord remembers. And the book is divided into three main sections. After a brief opening call to repentance, which is dated, the book's very hopefully dated, after the return from Babylon, after the Jews have been freed from the Babylonian captivity, um, in 520 B.C., Zechariah calls some opening to a call to repentance. You remember, return to me, says the Lord, and I'll return to you. And then, as the people respond in faith, chapters, the rest of one through chapter six, is covered by eight night visions. Um, Zechariah receives these visions, prophetic visions that need interpretation, that cover Israel's future, cover their prosperity, judgment on their enemies, and two visions in particular that clearly establish their political and religious leader, Zerubbabel, and Joshua the high priest, as in fact placed there by God, um, approved by God, and should be received for the work to be done, the work of rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the walls, and Nehemiah will pick this up. So that's the first major section, the eight night visions. Then, in chapter 7 and 8, we get another date, we've moved two years forward, the people send a question to the priests and to Zechariah. And the question is, Should we continue, should we keep going on with these fasts that we've been observing ever since the captivity? These are fasts that they created. They're not in Scripture. And as a way of commemorating, of mourning the destruction of Jerusalem, the assassination of Jedidiah, and their captivity, they were fasting. And God gives them an answer in four parts. Four times the word of the Lord comes to Zechariah with an answer. And the first two are rebukes. God reveals that you weren't ever really fasting for me, were you? And you really, have you ever really yet gotten around to fully doing what I asked you to do? It's when you ask your kid to go clean their room, and they come back and they say, Dad, I I wrote a poem for you. Well, that's wonderful, but did you clean your room? Some of you will know what I'm talking about. Um, But then the last two answers are are promising. They're encouraging. After this initial rebuke, God says, but I, I will restore you. And there will come a day when your fasting will be turned into feasting, when the days of sorrow, the days of mourning will be over, and the days of rejoicing, the days of of the wedding feast will be here. And that's the second major section of the book. And then the final section of the book, there we go, are the two burdens of the word of the Lord. Now, some translations translate it oracles, but if you'll turn to chapter nine, because we're gonna look in this a little more detailed, both 12.1, the text we start with today, and 9.1 begin with the same introductory formula. So we've got two burdens of the word of the Lord, and we're going to sort of, by way of recap, zoom in to just look at them briefly. The first burden concerns the land of Hadrach. 
Um, your, some of your translations might say oracle, but it's a note of a heavy, burdensome word. These burdens have calamity in view, disaster in view, difficult, heavy things in view. And the first burden is primarily deals with the events leading up to the first coming of Christ. Um, we're going to see in chapters 9, 10, 11, if you remember, we look at Alexander the Great coming down south by the Mediterranean, but Jerusalem will dwell secure as he goes on and returns. And then when um, Antiochus Epiphanes comes up and the, the Maccabean revolt, that Israel will be um, strengthened as well in fighting the Greeks. And the coming of the Prince of Peace, we see in chapter 9. It deals primarily with the events leading up to the first coming of Christ, and it begins with announcing judgment on the pagan nations. That's where the first burden of the word of the Lord begins, announcing judgment on pagan nations. However, go to chapter 11, where it ends is announcing judgment on Israel. And we remember when we were last here, the surprise of the way chapter 11 opens after Israel's Prince of Peace comes, after in chapter 10, there's a, a prophetic announcement that God will regather the tribes. He will bring them back. Though they're scattered, they will return. Words of comfort, words of encouragement and joy. Chapter 11 opens just in a stark juxtaposition. Open your doors, O Lebanon. The fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O cypress, for the cedars have fallen. For the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. And this comes as a shock. This is a burden that deals primarily with the pagan nations, and yet here, fiery judgment is announced on Israel. And as we read this subsection of the, of the first burden, we get into the, the shepherding imagery. Remember that Zechariah is told to put on the accoutrements, the gear of a shepherd, and to act out a narrative. And Zechariah, as the Lord's anointed of that time, does shepherd the people. But also we see it's anticipating the true shepherd, the good shepherd, the ultimate chief shepherd coming. And what happens? The shepherd battles Israel's foes and destroys them. He, he attacks the, the evil shepherds, the evil teachers who devour the flock. He feeds the sheep. These are all the things that Jesus does as he combats with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes as he feeds God's flock. And yet, the flock is disgusted by him. They weigh his worth as a measly 30 pieces of silver, the, the wages of a common slave. And that is the reason for the judgment. The reason for the judgment is the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, God's shepherd arrives and he serves the flock and he shepherds the flock and he battles their enemies and they want nothing to do with him. And this will be most fully and, and, and completely fulfilled when Jesus is betrayed, sold for 30 pieces of silver, thrown to the potter, and Israel cries out, away with this man, free Barabbas, crucify him, crucify him. And then if that's not bad enough, the end of chapter 11, God raises up a wicked shepherd to attack and harass Israel. And that, that was the last note. The first burden deals with judgment. Judgment on the nations that eventually arrives at judgment at Israel as Israel rejects their shepherd and is devastated. 
And if you read anything about history, you'll know in 70 AD, Titus comes in, thousands of Jews are crucified, the temple is taken apart stone by stone, just as Jesus said, not one stone will be left on top of another, and they are scattered to the four corners of the earth. It's fulfilled literally. Well now, chapter 12, we look at the second and final burden of the Lord, which covers 12, 13, and 14. It'll finish out the book. And there's a little bit of contrast. The second burden concerns the land of Israel. You see that in 12.1, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. And this also deals with the events surrounding Christ's coming, although primarily the events surrounding his second coming. In fact, this week we're going to look at the, the battle of Armageddon itself. This is primarily dealing with the events surrounding the second coming of Christ, heavily messianic, heavily eschatological, dealing with the kingdom of God, the final battle, the deliverance of Jerusalem. And it begins with a focus on Israel, specifically Jerusalem, and it's going to end with a focus on the nations of the world in relationship to Israel in chapter 14. And we're done. We should be done. There we go. Done with our slideshow. Excellent. Okay. That's it for the slides. Um, Also, as we look at this section, three words jump out repeatedly. Three words dominate chapters 12, 13, and 14. And they help give us a a bit of the theme of the text, um, or phrases, actually. The first you'll notice is, in that day. In that day occurs 16 times in chapters 12 and 13. You see it first in 12, 3. On that day, the Lord will make Jerusalem a heavy stone. Verse 4, on that day. Verse 6, on that day. Verse 8, on that day. Verse 9, 16 times. And eventually start asking, what day? What day are we talking about? But what's clear is the events spoken of here are going to take place in one period of time. This isn't going to be stretched out over hundreds of years. Rather, this is about a specific event. And that day, if you go to 14.4, ultimately, is the day when the Lord Jesus touches down on planet Earth at the Mount of Olives. Look at 14. We'll start at 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. You wonder why this book predominantly calls him the Lord of hosts or armies. It's because the book's going to end with the warrior king returning and fighting. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem to the east. Go down to verse 6 of 14. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. There shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all. All the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. That day refers to the events that involve the bringing in of the messianic kingdom, of the, of the Lord Jesus returning to earth, fighting his enemies, judging the nations, and instituting a kingdom where God rules on earth from sea to sea over the entire earth. That's the day this is talking about. So what's this second burden focusing on? It's focusing on what is referred to in other prophets as the day of the Lord. That's the focus. The second word that appears 
frequently. 21 times is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, is mentioned repeatedly. You see in verse 2 of 12, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. The siege on Jerusalem will be also be against Judah. Verse 5, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength. Verse 6, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem, 21 times in three chapters the city is, is mentioned. So another theme is this is going to focus primarily on events surrounding in and around Jerusalem, which makes sense. The battle is around Jerusalem. The Lord returns to the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem. This passage is focused on the fate of Jerusalem. There's one other player that shows up as well. Thirteen times we see a reference to the goyim, the nations, the Gentiles, the peoples. In our passage, you see it repeatedly. Verse 2 all the surrounding peoples, verse 3, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. Verse 6, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples. Verse 9, I will seek to destroy all the nations. And again and again, 13 times. And so you want to know what this, this final burden has to deal with? It deals with the events surrounding, leading up to, and concluding the day of the Lord with a focus on Jerusalem and the events that take place there in relationship to, as well, all the nations of the earth. That's what we're going to be dealing with. That's the focus and theme, which now, by way of introduction, I think sets up this text. We're going to really, this section, chapter 12, all the way through 13, 6, is one section. The way this is going to break down is we're going to look at the events, the battle of Armageddon from a bird's eye view, we're going to get greater clarity in chapter 14 of how this plays out. But we're going to look at the major events. And then in chapter 13, verses 7 through 9, is a subset picking up the whole shepherding motif. Again, just as the first burden of the word of the Lord ended with this subset of dealing with the shepherd, so it is picked up again in 13. And then 14 goes back to the battle of Armageddon, adding even more clarity and ends with the Lord being king over all the earth, the kingdom set up, and the nations going up year by year. Look at 14, 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. It ends up with a kingdom, and the nations coming and doing homage year after year to Jerusalem. So that's, that's sort of the lay of the land of this final burden of the word of the Lord. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10 briefly in five parts. Um, we have a prophetic declaration in verse 1. We take a look at the final conflagration in 2 to 3. In 4 to 5, we'll have divine intervention. 6 through 9, total devastation. In verse 10, sovereign salvation. So let's begin our study by reading the first 10 verses of Zechariah 12. <clears throat> the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. 
And all who lift it will surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will strike every horse with panic and... But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among the sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. And please for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. There's a marvelous passage of Scripture. Tremendous, looking at the events of the Battle of Armageddon, of the final battle, Israel's final deliverance and salvation. And The passage begins in verse 1 with, with an authorization of who's making the prophecy. It's clear. This is not the burden of the word of Zechariah only, this is the burden, the word, the Lord. And so, as we look to such events, speaking to the future, we can know with certainty these things will happen. Beyond that, in the rest of verse 1, three attributes are given to God, lest a person does not know who the Lord is. It's the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. And here's the point in B. This Lord who's writing this word is sovereign over heaven and he is sovereign over earth and he is sovereign over man. He stretches out the heavens. He's the sovereign over heaven. He made them. He rules them. He founded the earth. He made that. He rules that sphere as well. And formed the very spirit of man within him. He is the sovereign over man. So if there's any questions, is this person of the right or the authority to speak of such things? Yes, he does. He is the king of heaven. He's the king of earth. He's the king over man. He has the power, the right, the authority, the wisdom to declare such things. And so because of that, we can trust them. We can know with certainty this is how things will play out. So we have the prophetic declaration. Now let's move on to the final conflagration. And verse 2 then begins the actual prophecy. We see the word behold. And in chapter 14, after the break, chapter 14, 1 after the break, dealing with the shepherd, picks up again, behold, giving us further subsections. And what we have here, point A, is a global threat arises against Israel. 
It's spoken of at least three ways. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. And then in verse 2, Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. So it's focusing primarily on the Israeli city of Jerusalem. It's also dealing with the area of Judea. And really it's dealing with all of Israel. As all the nations of the earth gather against Israel, Jerusalem. It's kind of an overwhelming odds. You can imagine one war-torn city, one small little country. Here it says all the surrounding peoples, but if you go a little further, he declares that it's going to be all the nations that are coming. All the nations will arrive and attack Jerusalem. Verse um, 3, on that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. So I'm guessing that the largest percentage of the armies will come from their immediate neighbors, but there will be representatives from every people group, every nation on earth engaged in a global attack against Israel. As it were, anti-Semitism will have spread to all peoples. And yet there's great irony here because what looks like a hopeless cause, what looks like an unstoppable force is really the Lord's way of calling them to destroy them in one place and at one time. Point B, we we get a strategic reversal. A strategic reversal. You see, the nations of the earth in coming to destroy Jerusalem and the people of God will only be positioning themselves for the stroke of God's unmixed wrath upon them. I mean, we get that. Just look over at chapter 14, verse 2. Ultimately, who's behind this? For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. This is the Lord's plan. And so frequently, the enemy plays into his hand. God is sovereign. He is sovereign over the good things, and he's sovereign over things that look terrible like this. They're meaning this for evil. They're meaning this for hatred. They're meaning this to advance wickedness. And God is meaning this as a nice, simple way to deal with everyone all at once. And strategic reversals are seen in those two phrases spoken of. First in verse 2, I will make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. And in verse 3, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone. So the cup of staggering is not a very common expression for us, but it is repeatedly used in the prophets to speak of judgment and wrath poured out by God. In Isaiah 51, 17, we read, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. In Revelation 14.10, the same imagery is used, speaking of those who take the mark of the beast. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength into the cup of his anger, will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the picture is this. All all these greedy nations gather to surround Jerusalem. It looks like an easy target. And the picture is like a cup filled with what would appear to be good wine. And one writer describes it this way. The scene is vivid. A huge bowl of wine. Several men, representatives of Syria, Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, Phoenicia, crowding around the bowl, setting their lips to it. They are athirst to gulp down Israel. 
But strange to say, one after another, after drinking, steps back, reels, and staggers as a drunkard. For God has made this to be a bowl of reeling. They are rendered impotent by the wine of the wrath of God and stagger about like drunken fools. The city of God stands undefeated. You notice the reversal here. They think they've got it. They, they think this is theirs. They, they take it to their lips as a, perhaps a victory drink. And in so doing, they confound themselves. They are confounded. Second, the picture is of a heavy stone. And again, the picture here is probably one of a farmer who's plowing his field. He finds a large stone. He, he gathers some friends. They, they're going to move it. It's an obstacle in their way. And as they bend down to move it, rather they wound themselves. They pull and tear their muscles. Notice both of these are self-inflicted wounds on the nations. They're the ones who gather. They're the ones who drink. They're the ones who would move the stone, and they do it to themselves. They are utterly confounded. They are wounded. Now, we'll get greater details of how this works in chapter 14. That's the first movement. We see the prophetic declaration, God declaring who he is. We see the nations gather around Israel. And then we get this word that what looks like Inevitable defeat really will be turned around. They'll be confounded as they drink this cup of staggering. They will wound themselves as they attempt to lift this burdensome stone. Seeking to lift it, he injures himself. Likewise, the world views God's people as an impediment to its sinful program. But when the world tries to move Jerusalem, God makes her weighty and breaks the back of the ungodly. And I will zoom in even further, some further clarity on how this will play out with divine intervention. What we see here in point A is now amazingly, covenant curses begin to fall upon the nations. Covenant curses begin to fall upon the nations. On that day, declares the Lord, verse 4, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open. I will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Notice that that triad, panic, madness, and blindness. Now, in Zechariah's day, the cavalry is the heavy weapons. This This is the military might. This is the pinnacle of military technology. Heavy cavalry. Equivalent of of whatever our most cutting edge um, weapons would be today. And here the Lord directly intervenes with panic, madness, and blindness. Now, now turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 28. Because this is important. Because this is going to be a very, very encouraging word to Israel. You remember that Israel was in the Sinai covenant with God, and the Sinai covenant was bilateral. And what bilateral means is there are conditions for obedience, and there are also, this will happen if you're not obedient. The covenant of salvation that you and I participate in is unilateral. God makes promises. God performs things. But the Sinai covenant, which was never meant to save, but to govern the people, is bilateral. And so in Deuteronomy 28, it begins with blessings for obedience, and then in verse 15, curses for disobedience. There's, there's life, there's death, there's the blessing, there's the curse. And Israel knows this very well because they've been receiving covenant curses for what is coming up close to 100 years. God warns them, if you disobey, if you worship other gods, I will scatter you. They were scattered. He warns them, if you do not obey, you will will eat your children. You will starve and wander. This this all happens literally. 
And, and listen to Deuteronomy 28, 28. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. Exactly what he pours out upon the armies of the nations and their horses. And this, this is good news, because turn over a page to chapter 30, and look at verse 7. Speaking of a future time when Israel is being faithful, the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. Now this is truly amazing. Chapter 11, the last place we heard of Israel was their lowest moment. They've rejected their Messiah. They've sold him out. They've called for his blood, and he in turn has rejected them. And now, this sort of begs the question, what has changed? How can God go from cursing them to blessing them and cursing their enemies? Something has changed. We'll keep reading a little bit, and we'll see what it is, but this, should, this is good news for Israel because no longer are they the recipients of the covenant curses. Rather, their enemies are receiving the covenant curses. God is no longer disciplining them. He's disciplining the nations. He's, he's fighting for them, not against them. Covenant curses fall upon the nations. And, and notice the play on words. He blinds their eyes, but he says, I will keep my eyes open towards Jerusalem and Judah. It's wonderful to hear that God is blinding the eyes of their enemies while, while keeping his eye firmly on his people. And he does this in such a way, in verse 5, that Israel's leaders will know that the Lord saves them. There'll be no mistake. There'll be no confusion of how this is happening. Verse 5, the clans of Judah, literally the leaders of Judah, shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. God directly intervenes. He pours out the covenant curses on the enemy, and he brings glory to himself. So we move from first the enemies being confounded, then wounding themselves. They're cursed. Now comes the slaughter, total devastation, verses 6 through 9. On that day, I'll make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples. All Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. Here are your blanks. A, Judah shall devour all they come upon. Now what's really striking here is this, this empowering of the people to fight doesn't begin in the capital. It begins in the surrounding countryside. As you'll remember, Jerusalem is the capital city in the tribe in the region of Judea. And we've had the camera, as it were, look at the whole nation of Israel in the opening verse, and then we've looked at Jerusalem, we've looked at Judah. It's first those from Judah, those in the countryside, who, who begin to mount the assault. And as I said earlier... This is a bird's eye view because in chapter 14, we're going to learn that initially the enemies seem to be victorious. J jump over to 14, um, verse 2. This is, this is again, like I said, chapter 12 is the overview, the key events. 14.2, I'll gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken. 
and the houses plundered, the women raped, and half the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off. Then the Lord will go out to fight. So we know that before this victory comes will be the apparent defeat sort of giving some insight into raising that cup. The nations will think they've won. They'll breach the city's walls. They will take the people captive. And in so doing, they will drink judgment and confusion upon themselves. And the Lord will return. The Lord will fight. But we don't get that in 12. We just get the high points. They gather. They confound themselves. They wound themselves. They receive curses. And then ultimately, they get slaughtered. They get slaughtered. Point B. Divine strength and might are given. Verse 7. The Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. So first, the Lord's going to save both of them, but he's going to do it in a way that both receive honor. We already saw how it starts in verse 6, the Judah will be like a blazing pot in the midst of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves. And again, the picture is just something that devours everywhere it turns. You think of Samson tying the foxes together and lighting their tails on fire and how all the fields were burned. Fire indiscriminately devours everything that's flammable. And so the description here is Judah is like this fire, like a, like a pot filled with hot embers in the midst of wood, like a torch among sheaves. Everywhere it turns, there's just inferno, devouring. The Lord does this in a way that the, the tribe of Judah will be exalted as well. And this isn't just about exalting the tribe of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. On that day... The Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. Now this again is covenant promises. We saw earlier the covenant curses being poured out on their enemies. Now we're seeing covenant promises for obedience poured out on Israel. Listen to Leviticus 26, 7 through 8. Speaking of what will happen if the people are faithful. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. That's exactly what's happening here. The feeblest, literally the one who stumbles, either due to old age or youth or weakness, the feeblest among them shall on that day be like David. David is probably one of the mightiest warriors in Israel's history. David who slew the lion and the bear. David who was a man of war, a military leader. Well, if that's what the feeble will be like, what will the strong be like? They'll be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. If you remember in the Exodus, it was the angel of the Lord who, who guarded their rear and, and, and went ahead as, as, a, as a military sort of first offense. For Exodus 23, 20, Behold, I send my angel before you to guard you on your way and bring you to the place that I have prepared. They'll be unstoppable. I, I don't know what this will look like. I have guesses. These will be a, a supernaturally empowered people with might and strength, and they will become unstoppable. Then in verse 9, we get sort of a summary statement of, of all of this, what the Lord is up to. On that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. This is God's purpose. They think they're gathering to destroy Jerusalem. They're really gathering to be destroyed. 
Now, the destruction will not be absolute and total. Again, turn over to chapter 14, verse 16. There will be survivors. This destruction will not be absolute annihilation. Chapter 14, 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem. So there will be survivors. There will be nation remnants that, that make it through this. But the overarching theme is these nations are destroyed. Their armies are laid to waste. Chapter 14 will give vivid and gory specifics of people's flesh melting off their faces, the tongues rotting in their mouths. We'll get there. We'll get there. For now, it's just enough to know the Lord will destroy his enemies. The Lord will destroy his enemies. And that's really kind of part of the theme of the book. Go back to Zechariah chapter one. If you remember, in the very first night vision, after Zechariah first calls the people to repentance, return to me, says the Lord, I'll return to you. We get that scene of the horsemen in the olive grove and the angel of the Lord, who we know is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And in verse 12, the angel of the Lord cries out to the God the Father, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you've been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. God's been angry with them for a while through this book, and here's their final comeuppance. The reckoning that takes place, God is jealous for Jerusalem. He is jealous for his people. Look over in chapter two, verse eight. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you, touches the apple of his eye. And these nations that gather and assault Jerusalem, it's like they're poking God in the eye. God doesn't like that. And he destroys them. He destroys them. Now, as I've said, there's been a question that's been lingering, if you're reading this book in the reader's mind. How do we account for this sudden change? Remember that the judgment announced in chapter 11, closing out the first burden, was sudden and unexpected. And the prophet announces it and then explains why it's there. The same thing happens here. What's happened? How does God go from judging them and rising up evil leaders for them and, and declaring woes to them? Woe to the trees and woe to the lions and woe to the shepherds. There's woe to everybody. How do we get from there to God fighting for his people, God pouring out covenant curses on their enemies, God fulfilling covenant promises to them. That's where verse 10 is. Now look at verse 10 through 3.1 more fully next week, but I just want to, I got to dip in here and touch this to resolve this. This is the high point of the chapter. This is, in my opinion, the high point of the book. This is the text that repeatedly gives me goosebumps when I read it. It's prophetic accuracy and just the glory of what it depicts. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. 
You see, before God fights for Israel, God converts Israel. I'm guessing that this crying out to God probably occurs when the plundering of the city in chapter 14 occurs. I can't be certain, but 14 says that the nations gather, the city is taken, the house is plundered, the women raped, half the city goes into exile. I'm guessing, just be my guess, that this is the point where the lights go on, the veil is removed, and they cry out to God. I just want to make two points from this, this, this passage. Like I said, we're going to look at this more fully next week. There's no way five minutes in a sermon can, can do justice to 1210. Two points. First, the Lord will only bless and defend a repentant and believing people. The Lord will only bless and defend a repentant, believing people. Before the Lord can keep covenant covenant blessings and promises for them, they need to become faithful. Just as the book opens, the whole book is God with comforting words, but what's the first word out of Zechariah's mouth? Return to me and I will return to you. God wants to bless them. He cannot bless the disobedient and unfaithful. And so the first call of Zechariah is a call to repentance. You know, oftentimes we think of repentance as as a painful thing. It is, but it leads to such joy. And we see a picture, a vivid picture, of these people weeping and mourning, but it's through that change of heart, through that contrition, through that change of mind, through that understanding what they've done. You can just imagine this. What have we done? And the brokenness and the tears. But that that contrition, that sorrow, that godly sorrow is what puts God in a position to fight for them and establish their cause and bless them and support them. And it's true with us as well. If we walk in darkness, we don't have fellowship with God, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. God will not bless the unrepentant. God will only bless and defend the repentant and believing. You think of... Think of um, the conquest of Canaan when Joshua crosses the, the Jordan River with Israel behind him and they're up on the hill in the military strategic place is Jericho and a river is to Israel's back. What does the Lord God first require Israel to do? Circumcise all the people. Now if you're, if you're a military strategist, that's a bad strategy. At least you should have done that when you had the river separating you from the enemy on the high ground. If you'll recall, two of Jacob's sons slaughtered an entire village because the men had just circumcised themselves. When, when Dinah, their sister, was raped and the, the man who did it wanted to marry her, they said, well, you and all your people have to circumcise yourselves. And the men were so sore and so immobile afterwards that two of Jacob's sons could walk through and kill everybody in that town. Here, all of Israel circumcises themselves with a river to their back, their enemy on the high ground in a fortified city. Why? Because God's not going to bless the disobedient, unbelieving people. Over time, they forgot to obey. They forgot to do what he required. The power of holy war is holiness. He didn't tell them to sharpen their spears. He didn't tell them to do calisthenics. He says, get right with me. Get right with me. Be obedient to me. Then I'll fight for you. Walls will come down. Enemies will be vanquished. Get right with me. That's what happens here. 
God pours out his spirit. He, he brings them to faith. They cry out to him for pleas of mercy. They look upon him whom they've pierced, they, and they weep and they mourn. But what joy comes with that? And point B, notice this as well. And we'll, we'll look much more fully at this passage next week. I want you to notice this. Repentance is a sovereign gift of God and not a work of man. Repentance is a sovereign gift of God and not a work of man. You see, this is not how the, the story does not play out that in their vital moment, Israel finally figured things out. They finally were, were studying. Oh, whoa. No, who gets credit for the national conversion of Israel? God. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem spirits of grace and pleas for mercy. He pours out a grace that causes them to turn to God and cry out for mercy. Salvation is of the Lord. Yes, we must believe. Yes, we must repent. Yes, we must turn and choose Christ. Amen, amen, and amen. But when we do, it is only because God has poured out grace and mercy in our hearts first. God gets the credit for the national conversion of Israel. Even while every one of those individuals has to believe, has to turn, has to trust Christ, we have to do that. If you haven't done that today, if you've never turned to the Lord Jesus, if you've never realized your sin, if you've ever been broken of it, if you've ever been broken over your sin, you can look upon him who was pierced today. This isn't just a promise for the future. This is a promise for every day. The word is near. God is near. His, his salvation is near. But know that if you do, and if you have, it's because God's spirit has already been at work in your heart. It's great confidence I have, we have, when I witness and share my faith that there is, there is a spirit at work, the spirit of God who convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. This isn't something they muster up. This isn't something they found in their goodness. This is a sovereign gift of God, this repentance and contrition. Now, we'll pick this up next week, and we'll look at this more fully. But I want you to understand that God loves his people. He loves his people Israel. He loves us. And if we will be in the position, the sacrifices of God, we sang this earlier today, our broken spirit and a contrite heart, that is what he will not despise. If we can keep ourselves in that position before him, he will do mighty things for us. We see the mighty things he will do for Israel here. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we just praise you and thank you that you are so merciful, you are so good. Lord, here you, you pour out your spirit on those who were your enemies, those who rejected you and despised you and cried out for the blood of the Son of God. And yet you pour out your spirit on them. You open the eyes of the blind, you unstop the ears of the deaf. You have compassion on them. You remember your promises. And Lord God, we take such comfort and such hope in that. We, we cling to your promises too, and we, we trust that you will not forget them, that, that you will be faithful to us as well. And we know that you will. We know that as we sin, you promise that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive. You, you promise that anyone who comes to Jesus will not be turned away. And these are the, the, the promises that we cling to. That for us who have turned to the Son of God, there's life, there's forgiveness. 
And Lord, we give you all the glory for that. We, we know that we would never have loved you if you had not loved us first. We know that we have never chosen you if you did not choose us first. So Lord, we want you to receive all the glory, even as we receive the blessings and the joy. In Jesus' name, amen.